welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 29, Role-Playing Games from Literature. So we're at week two of our trip through role-playing games for different audiences and from unique sources. If you'll recall, last week we discussed role-playing games for younger kids, and next week we're going to look at role-playing games developed from fandoms. And if you're curious as to exactly what a fandom is, well, that's going to have to wait until next week. This week, we're looking at role-playing games developed from literature. Now, before we start looking at games, we need to set up some ground rules. First off, by developed from literature, I mean that the role-playing game comes from and or has the same title as the book it's based on. My reasoning for this is that technically Dungeons & Dragons comes from literature, if you consider the half a dozen or so fiction works that have been named as inspirations for the game over the years. Also, we're going to look at officially licensed materials. I realize this might upset some folks, but our basic rule of thumb here is that if it's based on a work by somebody else, that somebody else ought to be getting some cash for it. So we'll look at games like Lord of the Rings and the Dresden Files, to name two, But don't worry, those aren't going to be the only titles we look at today. But since I mentioned it first, let's start the tour with The Lord of the Rings. Now, over the course of role-playing game history, there have been three officially licensed versions. For the first version, we have to go all the way back to 1982, when Iron Crown Enterprises released the Coleman-Charlton-designed... Okay, hang on, guys, this is a big name. Middle-Earth Role-Playing, a complete system for adventuring in J.R.R. Tolkien's world. Yeah, that's the name. Blame it on the early 80s. This version of the game utilized percentile dice for most of the roles, as skills could rank anywhere between 1 and 100. Attack roles were also percentile roles for the same reason. Something else interesting about this game was that spellcasters learned their spells as a unit of 10, based on a theme, like healing. This version of the game got a UK edition from Games Workshop in 1985. Chris Achelios updated the box and booklet art for the release, and it also came with 25mm floor plans for the sample adventure. Our German friends got most of this game in a version called Mittlerd Rollenspiel around 1987. Lauren Verlag, later Queen Games, was the publisher. Swedish Lord of the Ring fans got a translated version in 1986 called Sagan om Ringen from Target Gams. In Japan, Hobby Japan released a version in 1987 and a Finnish version, Keski ma Rukpil, in 1990. And I hope I got all of those pronunciations correct. If I didn't, I do sincerely apologize. Over the course of the life of the first edition, 60-plus supplements were released. These various supplements, based on the entirety of Tolkien's work, fleshed out Middle-Earth for maximum gameplay. Now, I checked out a dozen different reviews for this version of the game, and every single one of them discussed how great a game this would be for fans of Middle-Earth, and they all agreed that the player wouldn't be disappointed. Now, insofar as sales, look, when you drop more than 60 supplements over the course of a decade, you are making bank. Trust me. In 1991, the second edition of this game was released. Now, it got a shorter title, thank God, and was now called Lord of the Rings Adventure Game. It also got two new designers, Jessica M. Ney and Pete Fenlon. 
And if all of that wasn't enough, this second edition got a new game system as well. Lord of the Rings was what is considered a levelless gaming system, and it was designed to help get new players and GMs involved in the world and the lore of Tolkien. Two six-sided dice were used to resolve skill checks in combat, and it was considered to be a stepping stone game to the first edition, which was still getting supplement materials published when this version came out. Both this version and the first edition stopped printing in 1999 when Tolkien Enterprises pulled the license. Next up is the Lord of the Rings role-playing game. Designed by Stephen S. Long, Christian Moore, Owen M. Seiler, and Ross Isaacs, it was released by Decipher Inc. in 2002. If that release year sounds familiar, that would be because it was released during the period of times of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Ring films, which led to a ton of Lord of the Rings-related material being released, including, I should note, a miniatures war game based on Lord of the Rings that came out the previous year. This game utilized the CODA system, which involves the rolling of two D6s to resolve all actions. The CODA system also utilizes character statistics, skills, and edges that are quite similar to those in the D20 system that had been released a couple of years before. It should also be noted that, in CODA, hit points are segmented into health levels. Therefore, damage taken takes away from levels. As a level is depleted, a wound penalty is added to certain actions. But enough of the system itself, let's talk about the game. The game is technically set in the period between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. However, the book contains examples of how to run your game in any period between the first to fourth ages. Dwarves, elves, hobbits, and men are available races for play, with the classes available being barbarian, craftsmen, loremasters, magicians, mariners, minstrels, nobles, rogues, and warriors. It should be noted that most of the classes, even if the names are a bit different, are variations on many of the classes in long-established games like D&D. Over the course of the game's life, 11 different releases were dropped, filling out the various times one could game in, as well as providing information on the Middle-earth of the Jackson movies. The Lord of the Rings role-playing game sold fairly well, and it won the Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Game of 2002, though its reviews were midline at best. It ceased production in 2006. The third version, called the One Ring role-playing game, was published by Cubicle 7 in 2011. Designed by Francesco Nepotello and Marco Maggi, this version of the game was considerably different than the previous games. A game of the One Ring is split into two phases, the Adventuring Phase and the Fellowship Phase. During the Adventuring Phase, the players, as a company of adventurers, makes their way through the wilds of Middle-earth in search of adventure. During the fellowship phase, heroes get the opportunity to rest and recuperate, practice their skills, or come up with some other undertaking that isn't adventuring. This is a fairly novel idea in the tabletop role-playing game world. While we've seen some games split their play a bit, I've yet to see one that delineates so clearly the difference between adventuring and leveling up, which is really what the fellowship phase is for. The One Ring also uses a special set of dice, which has dice marked with Gandalf's rune and the Eye of Sauron. And yes, those do come into play during the game. The rules of the game take into account the difficulty of traveling through the wilderness for any length of time, which very few games up to this point had even attempted. 
Most players of this version agree that the One Ring succeeds in this area. 14 supplements have been released for this version, and it was either nominated for or won nine different awards between 2012 and 2015. In November of 2019, Cubicle 7 dropped the license, but Free League Publishing picked it up, and they brought in Nepotello and Magi to work on a second edition of The One Ring. Ultimately, Free League utilized a Kickstarter to bring that game to market. It ended in March of 2021 and raised over $2 million U.S., making it a highly successful tabletop role-playing game Kickstarter. The second edition is currently available for pre-order from your friendly local neighborhood game shop as well as online, and it's scheduled to be released in January of 2022. Next up on our literary tour is the other book series I mentioned in my opening, The Dresden Files. The Dresden Files role-playing game was designed by Leonard Balsera for Evil Hat Productions and was released in 2010. The game itself utilizes the fate system, which we've touched on before. However, for those who don't remember, one of the big traits of the fate system is that abilities like strength and intelligence don't exist. Instead, the system utilizes a list of skills and assumes that, at minimum, everybody is at least mediocre in everything except those in which they've chosen to focus. Now, there's more to it than that, but I'm going to save it for a fate system episode a little later on down the line. The initial release was actually two releases, Your Story, which is the rules portion of the game, and Our World, which is a big book just chock full of setting information. The truth is that these are the only two books you need to run the game. To me, that was the beauty of the system. While there were a number of supplements written for the game, they were mostly new adventures rather than new expanded rules. The game is designed to be very narrative, meaning that characters are allowed a certain measure of freeform during the gameplay. The core books are written very tongue-in-cheek as well. They're presented as works from Billy Borden, who's a werewolf and role player in the Dresdenverse. Comments are written in the margins of the pages by Dresden himself and from Bob the Skull, adding some facts and a ton of humor to the books. The monster section of the rules are presented much like a D&D monster manual. Again, that would be because these guys are role players in the books. It should also be noted that the rules do not state what city you should play in. That allows for anyone anywhere in the world to be able to feel like they can run the game and set it in the large city of their choice. Like for me, I live in the St. Louis metropolitan area. So if I were going to run the game, I'd set it in St. Louis. However, I also have to add that Baltimore is used as the default city when city information is utilized in the setting portion of the rules. It's been reported over the years that this was intentional. I mean, if you used Chicago, because that's the setting for the Dresden books, players and GMs would either feel obligated for Harry Dresden himself to appear in the game, or they'd have to find a way for the group to operate separate from Dresden, which could be a creative nightmare. By utilizing a different city, you take that issue off the board. RPG Gamer loved this game. It got a 5 out of 5 rating, with the comments being, This is a game where every mechanic, every example, and the humor oozes of the Dresden Vile setting, and even if you aren't a fan, it still delivers a well-put-together urban fantasy game or an awesome magic system. It also won 8 awards between 2010 and 2011. Now, new copies of this game can still be found, 
but the easiest way to get your hands on it would be to get it in PDF form from the Evil Hat website. I personally have a PDF of this that I purchased when it was first released. While I haven't had the opportunity to run or play this game, I do agree with the reviewers. I think it'd be a whole lot of fun to be a part of, with one exception. And I need to note, I'm going to have this problem again next week with a couple of the games I'm going to talk about. If you've read the books, you understand that Dresden is the wizard and everybody else is either a cop, a werewolf, his vampire brother, or his apprentice, who is his later boss, who has a crush on him. Everybody else is either an adversary or somebody he really just doesn't 100% trust. So if you take all of that into account, if you have a party of four, what do you do if everybody wants to be a wizard? That's my issue. But so long as everybody's being adults about it, you should be able to work through that problem. I mean, if you wanted to have a party of four wizards, I guess let it be. Next up on our tour is a book series that became a very successful, as well as controversial, television series, Game of Thrones. Now, if we're going to be technical, the book series is a song of ice and fire, but it will forever be known as Game of Thrones, so that's why I led with it. A Game of Thrones, designed by a team of about a dozen and led by Jesse Scoble, was published by Guardians of Order in 2005. The game was designed to work with both the D20 and the TriStat DX systems. We've discussed the D20 system ad nauseum at this point, so I'll just refer you back to pretty much every episode of this podcast for more information. The TriStat DX system, however, is a new one on me. Basically, at character creation, you roll two six-sided dice, add 10 to the total, and then divide the result between mind, body, and soul. All action checks are made against that. Also, there are attributes, which can be both good and bad. Now, getting back into the game itself, there were two versions released in 2005. One was a limited edition of 2,500 copies. This one was serial-numbered, faux leather-bound, with silver gilt pages, and an interview with George R.R. R. Martin, and included both sets of rules. The standard copy only has the D20 rules. This version of the game was nominated for a number of awards in 2006, and won any awards for Best Production, got Silver, Best Game, got Silver, and Best D20 Open Game License Game, it got Silver. This version of the game is no longer in print because Guardians of the Order went under in 2006. George R.R. R. Martin reported in March of 2007 that he'd gotten his license back and he made a deal with Green Ronin to do a whole new line of RPG product. So, that brings us to A Song of Fire and Ice Roleplaying, which released on March 10th, 2009. Robert J. Schwalb gets designer credit for this, and it's noteworthy because it's the last Green Ronin credit for him before he left the company for Wizards of the Coast. This version of the game utilizes Green Ronin's version of the Chronicle system. It's based on the storyteller system we've talked about from White Wolf, wherein the roleplay is focused on more than the rolling of dice, though the dice are rolled and rolled in pools as well. This version won the 2009 Silver Any Award for Best Rules, but it wasn't a big seller and it went out of print a few years later. Alright, let's change gears and let's look at Conan the Barbarian or games based on the work anyway. TSR gets credit for getting the first licensed material to the table with a pair of adventure modules for AD&D in 1984. Titled Conan Unchained and Conan Against Darkness, 
they were poorly reviewed and didn't sell very well, which resulted in their being pulled from production within about a year. TSR wasn't going to let that license go away without a fight, however, and published the Conan role-playing game in 1985. Designed by Zeb Cook, it was a boxed game with a full-color map, a 32-page rulebook, a 16-page reference guide of talents, weaknesses, and charts, and a 48-page book with notes on the land of Hyboria. It also came with two 10-sided dice, as if there wasn't already enough stuff in that box. Basically, to play the game, you'd roll 10-sided dice and refer to the charts to resolve skill checks and combat. The game got three adventure supplements, but much like the AD&D Adventures, it got average reviews and it didn't sell well, so it was pulled within a couple of years. TSR then lost the license as well. GURPS Conan was next on the list. Published by Steve Jackson Games in 1988, it utilizes the GURPS rules, which, as you might remember, are a very generic set of rules created to allow just about any type of game to hang on its framework. Five books were published in the line, with four of them being adventures. They were decently reviewed and sold well enough to keep the line alive for a couple of years. The next work, based on Conan, is Conan the Role-Playing Game. Designed by Ian Sturrock, Paul Tucker, Harvey Barker, and Vincent Darlage, it was published by Mongoose Publishing in 2004. This game utilizes a version of the D20 system, though it was adjusted a bit by Mongoose to make it a little more their own. It should also be noted that there are no non-human races allowed in this game. Players must choose a race from one of the ethnicities depicted in the fictional world of Conan. Mongoose dropped a second edition of this game in 2007, with Gareth Hanaran joining the original designers for this edition. Over the course of its existence, the two editions dropped nearly 40 supplements, expanding on and filling out the setting of Conan, as well as providing further supplements for play. Of course, once Mongoose lost the license, it wasn't going to stay inactive for very long. Modifius Entertainment picked up that license and released Conan, Adventures in an Age Undreamed of, in 2017. Designed by Chris Birch, the game was funded by a Kickstarter that raised nearly 437,000 pounds sterling. Modifius is a British company, we should note that. And that greatly exceeded its 45,000 pound goal. The PDF of the game dropped in January of 2017 and the physical book arrived in June of that same year. This game utilizes the 2D20 system Modifius created in-house. I went into this in detail when I discussed the Star Trek Adventures game a couple of weeks ago, so I'll refer you back to that episode for more details. Needless to say, and I can speak from experience, the system is really easy to play. Over the past four years, Modifius has dropped nearly 40 supplements for this system, and they're all selling pretty well. The system has been well-reviewed as well, and Modifius reports they intend to continue producing product for that game as long as players will keep playing it. Now, I realize we've covered four pieces of literature and the games that are based on it. However, i got to point out, time does not allow for me to get into every single game based on literature. Because I note there's games based on Watership Down, it's called The Warren, Kiki's Delivery Service, Witchcraft, Mouseguard, called Mouseguard Role-Playing Game, and even Jane Austen. It's a game called Good Society, a Jane Austen role-playing game. A pretty good rule of thumb is this. If there's a popular piece of literature out there, somebody has probably created a game off of it. The difference is whether or not it's licensed. That leads me to answering a question I know you're going to ask. Yeah, 
there's a Harry Potter role-playing game. However, it's not officially licensed. That's why I didn't review it here. The good news for you, if you're a Harry Potter fan, is that it's a free PDF, which is probably why it's been allowed to continue existing. Since you don't have to pay for it, it can technically fall into the fan fiction category and be allowed to exist. If you're interested, Google it. You'll find it. I would note, however, that the new D&D supplement Strixhaven appears to be Wizards of the Coast's take on Hogwarts, so I get the feeling you might be able to take those rules and adapt the Hogwarts houses to it. Or not. Your call. My call, though, is to bring today's tour to a close. Next week, we're going to get into role-playing games based on fandoms. This one's going to be interesting, particularly because we have to determine what exactly constitutes a fandom. It's going to be a long development week. (laughs) Time to go out and buy me some more monsters. Hey, before I do anything else today, I want to shout out at ScaldRPG on Twitter. That's at S-K-A-L-D-R-P-G on Twitter. Thank you for promoting our podcast out to other people. And if you tweet us out as a recommendation, I will shout you out here as well. So, yeah. I also wanted to promote an upcoming appearance of mine. Coming up on Sunday, January 9th, I'll be appearing on Tales from the Tavern. It's a Twitch show with various members of the tabletop role-playing community with questions coming from the live chat. We'll be starting at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, so make your plans now to join us and ask your questions of the panel. Also, you can check out past episodes on YouTube as they get posted there about a week or so after they go live. Just make sure you're getting the show from Gamer Mom Luna, as I think there might be another show with a similar title on YouTube. I would also encourage you to follow Gamer Mom Luna on Twitter at Gamer Mom Luna. She posts some really cool stuff, and she is well worth the follow. As is at Scald RPG, by the way. Don't want you to think I forgot about you. Also, a big thank you to you for keeping our little podcast that could growing. We're adding more listeners around the world, and we're doing it almost exclusively by word of mouth. I am both flattered and humbled by this, so thank you. As always, you can follow us on Facebook, Roleplaying History Podcast, Twitter, at RoleplayingP, YouTube, you know we've got a channel there, Roleplaying History Podcast. Of course, you know what to do when you get there. We're all big kids here. If you'd like to send an email, please do so. I, I, I like checking that email box. Roleplayinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. So, next week we'll look at games based on fandoms. I gotta admit, I have no idea what the hell that's gonna look like. So, if you want to know how it's gonna be, you're gonna have to listen and find out. But that's next week. And until then, I'm Wayne Davis and your Roleplaying History.